the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Thursday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. I can hardly believe it's already Thursday. It was just Monday, just days ago. Anyway, we're glad to have you with us. James Blend is producing. Sam Maupin is engineering. Today we're going to talk with Dr. Andrew Farley. He is the author of eight books. His latest, The Grace Message, Is the Gospel Really This Good? He'll be joining us. We'll also take a look at what sleep experts have to say about the Senate's decision to um, make permanent daylight saving time. They're saying they've got it exactly wrong. We'll share more details on that. But first, today happens to be St. Patrick's Day. And for the sake of my sainted, now departed mother-in-law, uh, we'll be having an Irish meal in my home this evening. I think we have shepherd's pie, some Irish soda bread, and I don't know what else, cabbage something. I'll figure something out. Anyway, the uh, heroics of St. Patrick are not appreciated as much as they should be. Bill Donahue writes, uh, suggesting that a salute to St. Patrick's triumphs as a missionary and a human rights champion should be recalled. So we'll do just that. There's much to celebrate on the 17th of March today. Fortunately, St. Patrick's writings, though slim, are eye-opening accounts of his life. Letter to the soldiers of Corot... Caroticus and confession reveal much about the man, along with other sources. They paint a picture of his saintliness. Of course, the scripture refers to all believers as saints, but you get the distinction here. Patrick was born in Britain in the fourth century to wealthy parents, and it's likely that he was baptized, though growing up, he didn't share his family's faith. He was an atheist. When he was 15, he committed what he said was a grave sin, never saying exactly what it was. It appears it was, well, an encounter with a young girl. No matter, it would haunt him throughout his life. At age 15 or 16, the accounts vary, Patrick was kidnapped and enslaved by British, or I should say Irish, barbarians, as they were described. They'd come to plunder his family's estate, took him away in chains to Ireland. While a slave there, he converted to Christianity. There's nothing like hardship to... You know, for somebody to fall to the knee and cry out to God, praying incessantly at all hours of the day. After six years, he escaped and made his way back home. His family thought he was dead and with good reason. No one taken by the Irish raiders had managed to escape and return. He was, at least to their knowledge, the first. St. Patrick's biographer Philip Freeman describes how his family received him, stating... It was as if a ghost had returned from the land of the dead. Well, after he did return home, he had a vision while sleeping. He felt called to return to Ireland. This seemed bizarre. This is where he was brutalized as a slave. But he knew what Jesus had commanded us to do. Love thine enemy. He was convinced that God was calling him to become a missionary to Ireland. So he acted on it despite the reservations of his family and friends. And you can only imagine how reluctant they were to endorse this kind of a, a trip. Well, Patrick became a priest. He practiced celibacy. He was eventually named a bishop. Contrary to what many believe, he did not introduce Christianity to Ireland, nor was Ireland, he Ireland's first um, bishop. But he did more to bring 
uh, the gospel to Ireland than anyone else, converting legions of pagans, especially in the northern part of the country. His missionary work in Ireland has been duly noted, but his strong defense of human rights has not been given its due. No public person before him had denounced slavery, widespread though it was. Though he did not invoke natural law specifically, he was intrinsically drawn to it. He taught that all men were created equal in the eyes of God and that the inherent dignity of everyone must be respected. He did more than preach. He lashed out at the British dictator, Caroticus, uh, harshly rebuking him for his uh, mistreatment of the Irish. In fact, Patrick found his uh, Irish converts to be more civilized than Caroticus and his band of thugs. Well, Patrick was way ahead of his time in the pursuit of human rights, not only for men of every social status entitled to equal rights, but so were women in his view. In his letter to the soldiers of Caroticus, uh, he scolds the tyrants, uh, tyrants Caroticus, um, a man with no respect for God or his priests. More important, he made a startling plea. They must also free Christian women and captives. His reasoning showed the power of his faith uh, when he said, remember, Christ died and was crucified for these people. He didn't mince words. So, Caroticus, you and your wicked servants, where do you think you will end up? You have treated baptized Christian women like prizes to be handed out, all for the sake of the here and now, this brief fleeting world. What makes this all the more dramatic is the way the pagan world thought about women. The idea that women were equal to men was totally foreign at the time, but the women understood what Patrick was saying and gravitated to him in large numbers. The Christian tenet that all humans possess equal dignity had taken root. Well, did the Irish save civilization as Thomas Cahill maintains? And by the way, that's a fascinating book, How the Irish Saved um, civilization. Anyway, Freeman thinks not. It's um, It had never been lost, but everyone agrees that had it not been for St. Patrick and the monasteries that followed, much of what we know about the ancient world would not exist. Indeed, it's difficult to fathom how classical Greek and Roman literature would have survived had it not been for the Irish monks who attracted students from many parts of Europe. They were responsible for, for preserving the great works of antiquity, and all of them are indeed Uh, indebted rather to St. Patrick. It is uh, believed that he died on March the 17th, sometime during the second half of the 5th century. That is his feast day, the source of many celebrations in his honor. His impact extends beyond the Irish and the Catholic Church. Human rights are a global issue, making him a very special person in world history. And we acknowledge him on this St. Patrick's Day. Here's some of the headlines that I'm reading in the bylines. Putin arrests military chief for leaking. Troops warn will rise against you. Soldiers shooting themselves to get off front line, shooting themselves in the leg or wounding themselves in order to be sent back home. Ukraine mounts counteroffensive. Invasion has stalled on all fronts. Ruined game plan visible in South Graveyard of Tanks. How revamped military fumbled. Legendary paratroopers obliterated. U.S. citizen killed in Chernihiv. Inside propaganda bubble where war isn't war. Schwarzenegger invokes Nazi father in emotional plea. Violin becomes weapon of resistance in shelters. Government sites facing unprecedented cyber attacks. Moscow will put USA in its place. Japan spots four Russian amphibious warships sailing west. Some of the headlines will cover some of that news when we return in just a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back. 
You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Coming up later next hour, we're going to talk with Dr. Andrew Farley, author of The Grace Message, Is the Gospel Really This Good? Well, the answer is yes, and we'll talk about why when he joins us later in the program. Well, the assault on Maripol has revealed the full extent of Russian President Vladimir Putin's determination to take Ukraine as he claims that his country will undergo a natural and necessary self-purification of traitors. The Russian people will always be able to distinguish true patriots from scum and traitors and simply spit them out like a fly that accidentally flew into their mouths. That's a quote from Putin earlier today. I am convinced that such a natural and necessary self-purification of society will only strengthen our country, our solidarity, cohesion and readiness to respond to any challenges, end quote. We compared the West to Nazi Germany, accused Russians who opposed the war of having a slave-like mentality, the New York Times reported. He labeled the conflict a struggle for our sovereignty, for the future of our country and our children. But a fresh crackdown on anti-war sentiment, including a criminal case against a popular lifestyle blogger, pales in comparison to the horrors in Maripol where the Russian military has uh, appeared to overcome any hesitation about pulling its punches. Russia on Thursday bombed a theater in which thousands had taken refuge, even though satellite footage shows that the uh, word for children in Russian was written on the ground near the theater, according to Ukrainian officials in the city. Now, whether or not that could be seen from wherever the missile was launched is unclear, but uh, there was at least an attempt to identify the area as perhaps being beyond Attack. Ukraine's foreign affairs minister uh, called the attack another horrendous war crime in Maripol. The bodies of children piled up in a narrow trench hastily dug into the ground in the city. Mass graves now litter the outskirts with citizens working fast in order to bury the dead and minimize the risk of danger to themselves. The only thing I want is for this to be finished, raged one worker, uh, pulling crinkled black body bags from a trunk um, and said words I wouldn't... uh, wouldn't say appeals for humanitarian corridors to evacuate civilians remain unfulfilled. But Ukrainian officials said Wednesday that 30,000 people have fled in car convoys, airstrikes and shells uh, stuck um, civilian infrastructure, such as the maternity hospital, the fire department, homes, a church, a field outside a school. While Putin continued to claim that Russia would do Uh, No such thing. The surrounding roads are mined and the city's ports remain blocked as food runs out and the Russians cut off any attempt at humanitarian aid. They have a clear order to hold Maripol hostage, to mock it, to constantly bomb and shell it, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky said last week. Well, the deputy chief of Russia's uh, National Guard was reportedly detained on Thursday amid news that Russian President Vladimir Putin is cracking down on disloyalty within his ranks following the invasion of Ukraine. Russian General Roman Gavrilov, um, the internal military force of the Russian Federation that reports directly to the president of the Russian Federation, was detained by the Security and Counterintelligence Agency, Federal Security Service, According to the CEO of the Netherlands-based investigative journalism group, Bellacat, well, the reason for uh, Gavrilov's detention wasn't immediately clear. He said one of his uh, sources told him that uh, Gavrilov was detained by the FSB's military counterintelligence department over leaks of military information that led to loss of life. 
while two other sources said the reason was for wasteful squandering of fuel. Well, it's not altogether clear, but this is uh, another general reportedly detained, and we don't know for how long or for what reason specifically, but some are suggesting this might be telling. Meanwhile, Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov was allegedly on a flight headed to Beijing on Thursday, but the plane turned around midway and flew back toward Moscow, according to German newspaper Bild. The plane allegedly turned around while over um, a city in Siberia. Um, they've been unable to independently verify the uh, the report, but the tweet posted by the Ministry of Foreign Affairs of Russia on Thursday states that Lavrov was holding a press conference just ahead of 1 p.m. Thursday local time that would put Lavrov in Moscow at the time he was allegedly in the air. Now, it's unclear if uh, China refused to meet with a Russian official or if Russian President Vladimir Putin called him back to Russia, according to the uh, the build. The plane's uh, final destination is also unclear. But a State Department spokesperson said they didn't have information to share on the matter yet. Well, others have followed alleged flight logs which show a Russian government plane landed in Moscow at 6 p.m. local time. Bulgarian investigative journalists Posted on Twitter, President Biden is slated to have a phone call with Chinese President Xi Jinping on Friday to discuss the weeks long war in uh, Ukraine. White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki said the call is part of the Biden administration's ongoing efforts to maintain open lines of communication between the United States and China. China Foreign Minister Wang Yi touted the country's friendship with Russia earlier this month and called Moscow the most important strategic partner to Beijing. Well, China has also so far not condemned Russians, uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine, but China's ambassador to Ukraine praised the nation earlier this week. We will always respect your state. We will develop relations on the basis of equality and mutual benefit. We will respect the path chosen by Ukrainians because this is the sovereign right of every nation. And that's a quote from the Chinese ambassador there. Um, he is the uh, spoke on Monday, according to the regional government in this situation, which you have now, we will act responsibly. We have seen how great the unity of the Ukrainian people is. And that means its strength. Uh, Fan again, the ambassador said, so rather interesting to hear that statement from the Ukrainian ambassador from China, uh, given China's position in solidarity with Russia. Meanwhile, Victor Davis Hansen, who's one of my favorite columnists had this to say about some realities of Ukraine. He writes one, Reassuring an enemy what one will not do ensures that the enemy will do just that and more. Unpredictably, an occasional enigmatic silence bolsters deterrence. But President Joe Biden's predictable reassurance to Russian President Vladimir Putin that he will show restraint means Putin likely will not. Two, no-fly zones don't work in a big power um, symmetrical standoff. In a cost-benefit analysis, they are not worth the risk of shooting down the planes of a nuclear power. They usually do little to stop planes outside of such zones, shooting missiles into them, sending long-range, high-altitude anti-aircraft batteries to Ukraine to deny Russian air superiority is a far better way to regain air parity. Three, Europe, NATO members and Germany in particular have de facto admitted that their past decades of shutting down nuclear plants, coal mines, oil and gas fields have left Europe at the mercy of Russia. They're promising to rearm and meet their promised military contributions by their actions. They are admitting that their critics, the United States in particular, were right and they were dangerously wrong in empowering Vladimir Putin.
Four, China is now pro-Russian. Beijing wants Russian natural resources at a discount. Russia will pay for overpriced access to Chinese finance, uh, commerce and markets. Yet if Russia loses the Ukraine war, goes broke and as an international pariah is ostracized, then China will likely cut the uh, Russian albatross from its neck in fear of new Western financial, cultural and commercial clout. Five, Americans are finally digesting just how destructive the humiliating flight from Afghanistan was. The catastrophe signaled to Russia, China, North Korea and Iran that Western deterrence had died. No surprise that Russia sent missiles into Ukraine, a Ukrainian base near the Polish NATO border. North Korea in January launched more missiles than in any month in its history. Iran sent missiles into Kurdistan. China announces daily it's just a matter of time until it absorbs Taiwan. The tens of billions of dollars of sophisticated weaponry sent to Ukraine by the West are still far less than what the U.S. military handed over to the terrorists, the Taliban. Six, the Ukraine war did not cause inflation and record gas prices. Both were already spiked by early February of 2022. The cause was the administration's year-long radical expansion of the money supply at a time of post-COVID pent-up consumer demand. It foolishly continued de facto zero interest rates. Its generous COVID subsidies for the unemployed discouraged a return to work while slashing U.S. oil and gas production and pipelines. Prior to Putin's invasion, Biden was quite publicly blaming greedy corporations, oil companies, COVID and former President Donald Trump for the inflation that he had birthed in 2021. And he was claiming undeniable high prices were only temporary or mostly an obsession of the elite. Seven, Putin did not invade during the Trump tenure, although he had been more aggressive under previous American leadership with his prior attacks on Georgia, Ukraine and Crimea. Russia stayed still when gas, when oil prices rather were low, fuel supplies in the West were plentiful and the United States was confident when the U.S. was neither bogged down in optional military interventions nor led by a president predictably accommodating to Russian aggressions. Russia stayed quiet. Putin took note of increased NATO and U.S. defense spending. He feared low global oil prices and record American oil and gas production. He was very uh, he was wary, rather, after unpredictable American strikes against enemies like ISIS, Abu al-Baghdadi and the Iranian general Qassam Soleimani. It was uh, not it is not escalation to send arms to Ukraine. The Russians far more aggressively supplied the North Koreans. The North Vietnamese in their wars against America without spreading the war globally. Pakistan, Syria and Iran sent deadly weapons, many in turn supplied to them by Russia, North Korea and China to kill thousands of Americans during the Afghanistan and Iraq wars. Well, some things to think about. And I appreciate the perspective and the thoughts of Victor Davis Hansen. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. We're winding our way through some of the top news stories of the day. And later in the program, we'll talk with Dr. Andrew Farley, author most recently of The Grace Message, Is the Gospel Really This Good? We'll also take a look at what sleep experts say about the Senate that passed unanimously keeping daylight saving time permanent. They say, well, it should be just the opposite, that standard time should be uh, maintained as permanent. The House has to take this up. We'll let you know what the sleep experts are saying about what should happen. That's coming up in today's program. 
Well, the U.S. has started to send Ukraine switchblade drones, which one military expert said could prove a game changer in the defense against Russian and Russia's invasion. My understanding of this new drone is that it's not a traditional drone, what some call a loitering weapon. A retired Marine helicopter pilot says it gives you the ability to launch it in a 300 series or 600 series. And the 600 series has a loiter time of about 40 minutes. So you're looking at the ability to launch this remotely piloted weapon and have it sit above a battle space. Now, I know um, Sam has a, he's a guy who does um, drones. So you'd understand all of this. But it was confirmed that the U.S. will send these switchblade drones to Ukraine after NBC first reported the drones at a cheaper cost will provide two possible benefits to bolster Ukraine's uh, efforts at self-defense, limiting collateral damage and enhancing Ukrainian forces guerrilla tactics, providing much needed information from the videos. um, You have the ability to wave off. You can target a vehicle, but say a civilian or noncombatant enters the scene. The user can dismiss the target command. Uh, that's a game changer, he went on to say. It has the potential to limit collateral damage on the battlefield. But the other great thing is that it gives the Ukrainian people uh, standoff capabilities. So uh, some of what the United States is sending into Ukraine, apparently, as mentioned, could be a game changer. Well, speculating that children may be targeted, Ukrainian officials in the besieged city of Maripol claim that Russian forces bombed a theater in which thousands had taken refuge, even though satellite footage shows that the word for children in Russian was written on the ground near the theater. Now, it's not clear that they could read it from where this missile was launched, so I'm not, I'm not sure if that tells us the whole story. An Alabama doctor vows to get his nine-year-old adoptive son out of Ukraine, no matter what it takes. And in an elementary um, mistake, a teacher's union leader misspelled Ukraine after posting pictures of the Ukrainian flag upside down. Geopolitics experts say the U.S. should be devoting more resources to bolstering psychological warfare, an approach that would not send American troops into harm's way. I'm not sure what that psychological warfare would be, but that's what they're recommending. Senator Josh Hawley warns that President Biden's Supreme Court nominee, Judge Ketanji Brown Jackson, has a pattern of letting child pornography offenders off the hook for their appalling crimes, both as a judge and as a policymaker. Well, she, of course, will come before the Senate fairly soon and all kinds of questions will be asked. I hope she's treated better than the last two nominees under the previous administration. I hope she's treated with respect. Well, the ACLU Virginia adopted the Southern Poverty Law Center claim that Alliance Defending Freedom is a hate group in an effort to shame a school board into compliance with the ACLU's preferred transgender policies. And in a media echo chamber, MSNBC, CNN and PBS have embraced President Biden's rhetoric on inflation and gas price hikes. The Canadian Radio, Television and Telecommunications Commission announced a ban on Russian state-owned television channels, including Russia Today or RT, following the invasion of Ukraine. And in an example of friendly fire, former CNN anchor Chris Cuomo held back no punches in an explosive $125 million arbitration demand against the network, pointing to controversies that have plagued ex-colleagues as proof of selective enforcement of its policies. 
An opinion columnist for USA Today celebrated the news that a tornado had damaged a Florida Republican state lawmaker's home Wednesday. Michael Stern, whose Twitter profile describes him as an opinion columnist for USA Today, contributor to several other media publications, and a former federal prosecutor, sent out the shocking tweet on Wednesday evening directed at State Representative Joe Harding, who sponsored Florida's parental rights in education bill. In an effort of being clever, he said, I'm not a believer, but the tornado that just ripped apart the home of the author of this bill is making me reconsider. Hmm. MSNBC's uh, Chris Hayes suggests Tuesday that countries accepting Ukrainian refugees amid the Russian invasion, such as Poland, had a nefarious reason for doing so after failing to accept Syrian refugees 11 years ago. Michael Walz challenges President Biden to give Russia a clear red line on weapons of mass destruction in Ukraine. And James J. Carafano acknowledges that President Zelensky gave a powerful address to Congress, but asks, what's next? Well, several things have already been announced. Dr. Marty Markeray uh, points out the medical establishment has marched in lockstep on COVID-19, presenting a consensus of expertise as they marginalize physicians who had different opinions. Two years into the pandemic, it's fair to ask, how did public health officials do? We'll take a look at that later in the program, if time permits. How did they do? Tucker Carlson said, at this point, no one wants to uh, say Uh, Say it out loud, but it's true. At this point, a shooting war with Russia seems inevitable. I hope and pray he's wrong. The U.S. Justice Department has charged five individuals working on behalf of the People's Republic of China, secret police for targeting, harassing and spying on Chinese nationals living in the United States for their pro-democracy views. And a Kremlin spokesman fired back after President Joe Biden called Vladimir Putin a war criminal on Wednesday, calling his comments unforgivable. And a Russian recession. Goldman Sachs economists warn that the probability of the U.S. economy plunging into a recession in the next year has risen dramatically in the wake of the Russian-Ukraine war. And an expert warns that China will pay a high price for negotiating in the Russia-Ukraine conflict as it... uh, Ways and invasion of Taiwan. Ukrainian President Zelensky addressed U.S. Congress yesterday seeking help. The president, uh, Volodymyr Zelensky, in an address to Congress Wednesday, pled with the United States to do more by implementing a no-fly zone, providing additional aircraft and air defense systems, and creating a new security alliance. Zelensky speaking to U.S. lawmakers from Kiev, where he's chosen to remain even as Russian forces move on to the city, thanked President Biden for his personal involvement and his sincere commitment to the defense of Ukraine and the United States for the aid it has provided. However, now it is true in the darkest time of our country uh, for the whole of Europe. I call on you to do more, Zelensky said. President Biden responded by promising more money. Security and foreign policy expert James Carafano Carafano, told Larry Elder, I'm all for giving the Ukrainians any weapons that we possibly can. And really, that's what's keeping them in the fight, as well as food and medical supplies. Another story notes that Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky's personally thanked the Russian reporter who interrupted live state TV coverage to wave a no-war sign in front of the camera in protest of the invasion of Ukraine during one of his video addresses on Tuesday. And from a terrific piece by Barry Weiss, why is witnessing such courage unforgettable? It is because I cannot help but notice the gap between them 
and us between the bigness of their vision and their mission and their uh, the smallness of our own between their moral clarity and our moral confusion between their spine and our spinelessness between their courage and our epidemic of cowardice between their commitment to civilization and our resignation to chaos. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're going to take a quick break. Uh, just a reminder, coming up later in the program, Dr. Andrew Farley, The Grace Message, the title of his book. We'll be back in a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, Russia's uh, losses are mounting, according to observers. The conservative side of the estimate at more than 7,000 Russian troop deaths is greater than the number of American troops killed over 20 years in Iraq and Afghanistan combined. And look at how the city of Voznesinsk, uh, Ukraine, took on and defeated a Russian battalion is impressive. You can read more about that in the Wall Street Journal. President Biden called Putin a war criminal. At first, he said no when asked by a Fox News reporter, Jackie Heinrich. But as he thought about it, he said, did you ask me whether I would call? Oh, yeah, I think I think he's a war criminal. Unforgivable. That was the response from one Russian official. President Biden used uh, Bloomberg to explain gas prices, but then Bloomberg corrected the president. He used a chart to insist high prices, which a few days ago he blamed on Putin, are now uh, high because oil and gas companies are padding their profits at the expense of hardworking Americans. Javier Blas of uh, Bloomberg later tweeted, I see the White House chart is a source to Bloomberg LP data as a public service. I'm going to suggest a different chart. Mine has some of the same elements, WTI oil and retail U.S. gasoline prices. But instead, I normalized it and used December 1st, 2021 equals 100. He then um, used a chart that revealed prices are low in comparison to the price of oil. And from the Wall Street Journal, gas prices almost always rise faster than they fall, as the Federal Reserve Bank in St. Louis uh, explained in the 2014 report. When oil prices rise after being steady for some time, gasoline prices shoot up quickly, the Fed paper explained. In contrast, when oil prices fall after being steady for some time, gasoline prices retreat slowly. Individual retailers set gas prices based on what they expect their future fuel deliveries to cost, but they have no clue right now due to all the global uncertainty. Oil prices have plunged this week Uh, This past week, in part because the United Arab Emirates said it would urge OPEC to pump more, but the cartel might not. Russia bombed a theater filled with families taking refuge. Hundreds in Maripol residents were hiding in that theater, uh, among them many children. President Biden is considering lifting the terrorist designation on Iran's Revolutionary Guard as a trade for going along with the Iran nuclear deal, which isn't great in itself. From Ariel Davidson, it's hard to put into words how disastrous this would be. The IRGC is a terrorist organization, full stop. Did this administration learn nothing from delisting the Houthis? Well, in a recent poll, Americans overestimate the percentage of homosexuals by 10 times. 
and a series of many similar overestimations. Looking at the list, it appears whatever is beloved by the far left in media is grossly overestimated, though not all of those overestimated are favorable to the left. A judge ordered Jussie Smollett released pending appeal. The story notes the actor's lawyers have argued to the uh, panel of judges that his sentence would be fully served by the time the appeals process was completed. And Disney employees staged walkouts over the bill keeping the trans agenda from young children kindergarten to third grade, which the Hill calls the don't say gay bill, adopting the rhetoric of the of the left. The Fed fights inflation by rising interest rates for the first time in three years. The Federal Reserve has done what it arguably should have done months ago, raise the interest rate. As inflation hits a 40-year high of 7.9 percent, thanks almost entirely to the government's overreaction to the COVID pandemic, the Fed was going to have to eventually respond to stop the bleeding. Fed Chair Jerome Powell explained, it's clearly time to raise interest rates. We do feel the economy is very strong and well proportioned to withstand the higher rates. On Wednesday, the Fed announced a quarter percent bump to the interest rate uh, from 0.25 to 0.5 percent. Powell further indicated that this rate increase is likely just the first of several more planned for this year. The head of America's largest teachers union has had quite the embarrassing week on social media. Randy Weingarten, president of the American Federation of Teachers, made a series of spelling and factual errors. In an attempt to express the AFT's solidarity with the people of Ukraine, Weingarten posted, We hashtag stand with Ukraine, which quickly brought a host of responses, pointing out that she had misspelled Ukraine. But this was not Weingarten's first Ukraine-related error. As the day prior, she posted an image of herself and AFT Executive Vice President Evelyn Dejehus uh, unwittingly holding the country's flag upside down with the yellow, which is meant to represent a bountiful harvest over the blue, the sky. Well, the mistakes elicited a response from School Choice Now National Director of Research, Corey DeAngelis, who stated they did to that flag what they did to education these past two years. Pretend they care, but really they just made it upside down. A Boston Black Lives Matter leader has been indicted for fraud. Monica Cannon Grant, leader of the Marxist Black Lives Matter chapter in Boston, and her husband were indicted on federal charges on Tuesday. The 41-year-old faces 18 counts and charges, including defrauding donors, lying on a mortgage application, and illegally collecting pandemic-related unemployment benefits. Cannon Grant and her husband raised over a million dollars in donations connected with their BLM activism and used the bulk of that money on their own interests. The Boston Globe reported, while Cannon Grant reported to the IRS and the state attorney's general charity division that she received no salary, prosecutors said that in October of 2020, she started paying herself $2,788, I should say $2,788 a week. Grifters gonna grift. Well, four Disney employees have been arrested for human trafficking following a recent police sting conducted in Florida dubbed Operation March Sadness 2. 108 individuals were arrested for their alleged involvement in child sex trafficking. Included in those arrests were four Disney employees. This is huge, uh, contended Polk County, Florida Sheriff Grady Judd. Four arrests of this magnitude is simply remarkable. He further observed, we protected some little girl someplace that was groomed or potentially groomed by these evil deviant criminals, thugs, That's all they are. 
They're dangerous people, end quote. Well, this happened just days after Disney bowed to the Rainbow Mafia in hammering Florida and Republican Governor Ron DeSantis over the recently passed parents' rights bill. Tell us again how Disney cares more for the welfare of children than their own parents. Well, maybe Disney executives should spend more time focusing on who they're hiring than on promoting the false political talking points about a piece of legislation they clearly never read. Well, the Department of Justice is investigating Hunter Biden for foreign lobbying violations. President Biden's ethics waivers are on track to surpass Donald Trump's tally, according to a watchdog group. House leaders want to take up daylight saving time later. President Biden's Supreme Court pick championed advocates of critical race theory in lectures and speeches. And the new Iran agreement would let Russia cash in on $10 billion contracts to build nuclear sites At the same time, the U.S. has issued sanctions against Russia. Chris Cuomo cites Don Lemon, Jake Tapper and Brian Stetler in his $125 million demand against CNN. The arbitration demand calls his firing an unlawful termination and that Warner Media's claim that the former Cuomo primetime host violated the network's news standards and practices is false. Joe Rogan slammed big tech censorship and its woke ideology. I guess that's not altogether surprising. On this day in history, 1762, the New York City, I should say New York City, holds its first St. Patrick's Day parade. The Revolutionary War siege of Boston ends as British forces evacuate the city in 1776. 1906, President Theodore Roosevelt first likens crusading journalists to a man with a muckrake in his hand in a speech to the Gridiron Club in Washington, D.C. By the way, a muckraker is one who investigates and exposes issues of corruption that often violate widely held values. 1912, the Campfire Girls organization is incorporated in Washington, D.C., two years to the day after it was founded in Thetford, Vermont. The group is known now as Campfire Girls. Wohilo to my fellow sisters. 1958, the U.S. Navy launches the Vanguard One satellite. 1959, the Dalai Lama flees Tibet for India in the wake of a failed uprising by Tibetans against Chinese rule. 1973, U.S. Air Force Lieutenant Colonel Robert Sturm, a freed prisoner of the Vietnam War, is joyously greeted by his family at Travis Air Force Base in California in a scene captured by the Associated Press photographer Slava Sal Vetter in a photograph that would win the Pulitzer Prize and become iconic. 2006, federal regulators reported the death of two women in addition to four others who had taken the abortion pill RU486. Planned Parenthood says it will immediately stop disregarding the approved instructions for the drug's use. Well, you think? And 2009, the Seattle Post-Intelligentsier published its final print. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We've got news and traffic coming at the top of the hour. And in our second hour, Dr. Andrew Farley, The Grace Message. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to the second hour of The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up in this hour, we'll hear from Dr. Andrew Farley. He's the author of many books. His latest, just released earlier this month, The Grace Message, Is the Gospel Really This Good? The book is published by Salem Books. That's coming up shortly. And we'll also take a look at what sleep experts say about whether or not this uh, decision on the part of the Senate to make daylight saving time permanent is in our best interest. Well, we started the first hour talking about the legacy 
of St. Patrick. And I thought I would begin this hour, since we're going to be a little bit short, with some of the um, Irish blessings. There's this one. May your troubles be less, your blessings be more, and nothing but happiness come through your door. Uh, May you live a long life full of gladness and health with a pocket full of gold, at least of your wealth. May the dreams you hold dearest be those which come true and kindness you spread keep returning to you. These would be way better if I had an Irish accent, but I'm not going there. Uh, Anyway, may your pockets be heavy and your heart be light. May good luck pursue you each morning and night. May you sound, uh, may the sound of happy music and the lilt of Irish laughter fill your heart with gladness that stays forever after. May the road rise to meet you. May the wind be always at your back. May the sun shine warm upon your face and rains fall soft upon your fields. And until we meet again, may God hold you in the palm of his hand. And one of my favorites is simply this. It's a quote from St. Patrick, at least a partial quote. Christ beside me. Christ before me, Christ behind me, Christ be with me, Christ beneath me, Christ above me. I, I love that. Well, White House COVID-19 response coordinator Jeff Zients has stepped down or at least will step down from his position in April. The president announced today the president credited Zients with helping the effort to vaccinate Americans against COVID and delivering COVID tests throughout his 14 month tenure. He put his decades of management experience to work, formulating and executing on a plan to build the infrastructure we needed to deliver vaccines, tests, treatments and masks to hundreds of millions of Americans. The president said in his statement. Some Biden administration officials viewed him as a potential successor to White House Chief of Staff Ron Klein, political reported in February, so we may not have seen the last of him. Science will be replaced by Dr. Ashish Jha, the dean of Brown University School of Public Health in the uh, middle or the early part of April. White House officials told The New York Times that the selection of Jha, a, a policy expert in pandemic preparedness, reflects the administration's recognition that the virus has become endemic and no longer requires a fast paced crisis response approach. Well, we, we won't have time today, but I uh, hope to get into the 10 biggest COVID mistakes we made along the way. Americans deserve an apology from medical experts, says Dr. Marty um, McCary uh, suggesting that some of what we did was wrong. Now, some of it was inadvertent. Uh, the part that's frustrating is the fact that they didn't admit once it was discovered some of the initiatives were wrong. But we'll get into that on another occasion. Do want to remind you coming up, Andrew Farley, Dr. Farley is a pastor as well as a, a Ph.D. He is uh, the author of The Grace Message. Is the gospel really this good? And we'll look at uh, what sleep experts are saying about Permanent Daylight Saving Time. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Well, my next guest has written a book you need to read. It's called The Grace Message. Is the gospel really this good? Well, the ministry that's dedicated to proclaiming the love and grace of God with boldness and clarity, Pastor Andrew Farley. He believes there's no greater message needed today than the message of God's grace. Now, in the book titled The Grace Message, Is the Gospel Really This Good? from Salem Books, he shares how grace turns everything upside down. Now, when you think about grace, do you think about it having an impact on every area of your life? Well, he says that lots of people are getting a lightweight understanding of God's grace 
And it's only for them forgiveness when they fail and heaven when they die. They don't see the empowerment of God's grace. So we're going to talk about the grace message uh, with Dr. Andrew Farley. He's a best-selling author of nine books. He serves as president of the Grace Message, a nonprofit Christian media ministry dedicated to proclaiming the love and grace of God with boldness and clarity. He hosts the Grace Message with Dr. Andrew Farley every weeknight and Sunday afternoon on Sirius XM Satellite Radio and on stations across North America. He's also the lead pastor of the Grace Church and has been recognized with several awards for his excellence in teaching. He lives in Dallas with his uh, family, wife and son, and we're just delighted to have him here with us today to talk about this extraordinary book. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, well, thank you for having me. It's my pleasure. Well, this is such an important subject, and you would think within the Christian church, this would be like the thing everybody understands, clings to, and recognizes as uh, you know, the golden ticket, if you will. That's a, a poor way of putting it, but I think you get the idea. Why yeah. is it that we have to be taught and retaught to understand and embrace and fully enjoy the, the benefits, the lavish grace that God has for his children? Yeah, well, we grow up uh, going to school. We work hard and they give us good grades and we go to the workplace and uh, give it our best effort and they give us a promotion. So we're very much accustomed to an achieving system. And then we come to believe in Christ and we now are engaged in a receiving system. It's the opposite, the polar opposite of what we experience on planet Earth. And so grace turns everything upside down. It's it's not about our trying. It, it's really about our trusting. And it's not about what we're doing for God. It's really about what He did for us. So it's counterintuitive. It's an assault on the ego at times. Mm. And we just have to be receivers of God's grace. You begin with an exploration of the Old Testament law, which is perhaps where some of our confusion comes from, and you contrast that with the New Covenant. Can you give us a a kind of a brief overview of the two different systems and, you know, the fact that we're under the New Covenant, the benefit we enjoy because of what Christ has done? Yeah, I don't think we realize how stringent and even impossible the law really was. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was 613 commands uh, staring us in the face everything from dietary laws to uh, ceremonial washings and sacrificial regulations. And, you know, we tend to think of the Old Testament law as 10 rules written on stone, uh, but it was much larger than that. And for a reason, I mean, Jesus comes along and basically shows that it's impossible. Hey, you think you're doing good avoiding adultery. I tell you, if you look with lust, it's the same thing. And you think you're doing great just avoiding murder. Well, I tell you, if you get angry with someone, it's the same as murder. Um, He's raising the bar and showing the impossibility of true law keeping so that they would realize their need for God's grace. And, you know, God's grace is the polar opposite. It's not us trying our best to get close to God and stay close. It's In fact, uh, the idea that Jesus made us close through the death, burial, and resurrection, everything is free to the believer. Uh, We're forgiven for free. We're made righteous for free. We're brought near to God for free at no cost to us because it costs Jesus everything. Absolutely everything. And then you have the the Pharisees and the teachers of the law that heap tradition and all sorts of rules that were never intended uh, on top of the law, making it even more impossible, but somehow believing that if we just add more to it, if we just try to clarify it in our own strength, then somehow we're going to measure up to what Jesus himself declared is an impossible standard. 
Yeah, I mean, what they were doing was they were <laughs> they were adding things that were achievable for them personally, and then they were creating loopholes and they were creating exceptions and addendums and that sort of thing to try to make it palatable and doable. And you know, the New Testament reveals. If you keep the whole law and stumble in one point, James says, you're guilty of all of it. Uh, Galatians says you're under a curse if you're under the law, because cursed is everyone who does not obey everything. So the law is not multiple choice. Uh, It's not choose your own adventure. Uh, It's not like a buffet line at your favorite restaurant. The law is an all or nothing proposition, and that's why we need God's grace instead. Now, let's begin by defining grace. How is it different from mercy or even forgiveness? Well, I mean, mercy is when you're driving down the road at 100 miles an hour and the police officer pulls you over and says, hey, I'm not going to give you a ticket today. I'm going to show you mercy. Uh, But if he pulls out a $1,000 bill and hands it to you, that's grace. I mean, grace is ridiculous. It's over the top. It's uh, It's just excessive and and beyond measure. It's undeserved favor. And that's that's the difference between grace and mercy. But I think the average Christian, we're just looking at grace as, well, forgiveness and heaven. You know, God's a banker that canceled my debt, and he's a travel agent that has booked me for heaven. But God's grace is bigger than that. God's grace also means that God is a heart surgeon. He took out our heart of stone, gave us a new heart filled us with new desires, gave us his spirit. So God's grace is equipping, and anybody that throws stones at God's grace or wants to lessen God's grace is going to lessen their victory over sin. Now, why? what is the new covenant, and why is that so important? We've talked a little bit about the law and how impossible it is to live up to the standards there. And, you know, I think a lot of people question, well, why were they put in place? We know that Jesus explained to expose the fact that we we can't achieve, you know, God is so holy, his standards are so high, we cannot reach that standard. Well, let's talk about the new uh, covenant and how that somehow reconciles us to God in ways that the law never could. Yeah, so the promise of the new covenant is actually older than the old covenant, and a lot of folks don't realize that, but I mean, obviously the, the promise given to Abraham was that he would be the father of many nations, And that's what the new covenant is. Uh, Jesus Christ was lifted up on that cross. He begins to invite anyone and everyone to come to him. Whosoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And when we're saved, we enter into the benefits of this new covenant. And it's not our promise to God. It's actually God's promise to himself. Uh, Hebrews tells us this. It says God could, could not swear by anyone greater So he swore by himself, and we learn that the New Covenant is basically God promising God. So on one hand, you've got the faithfulness of God, and on the other hand, you've got the faithfulness of God, and that's what locks us in. That's why we're saved and forgiven and righteous, because God has promised himself uh, to keep us secure. So the Old Covenant was their promises. Uh, God, we're really going to do it this time. We'll rededicate. We'll recommit. We'll obey everything, Lord. And it, it was a story of failure upon failure. And that's why the new covenant is so radically different. It's not about our promise keeping. It's about God's promise keeping to himself. 
I know that you, when you've presented the message of, of grace, sometimes it's interpreted as being dangerous, that it is a cheap grace that you're referencing, that it gives people a license to sin. Can you uh, ex- respond to those objections? And we'll go a bit deeper uh, in that area. But um, why do people yeah. fear the notion of grace as the scripture describes it? Yeah, when people call it dangerous grace, I like to say, well, yeah, it's dangerous to the enemy. If you get a hold of God's grace, Titus 2 says the grace of God teaches us to say no to sin. The enemy doesn't want that. The enemy wants you uh, looking at rules, trying to engage in rule-keeping, being scared of God, trying to impress God every day with your actions. That's not the gospel. So grace is dangerous, but it's only dangerous to the enemy. Somebody says it's cheap grace. Well, I don't get that because, as we said earlier, it costs Jesus his life and it's free to us. So there's no place for cheap grace. And then, you know, people will say it's hyper grace. I like to say, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty hyper about it myself. And the New Testament even uses the prefix hyper multiple times to talk about God's grace, that it's excessive, it's overabundance. Uh, the overabundance of grace is it's off the charts. It's amazing. And then lastly, I would just say, you know, people are, are saying grace is uh, a license to sin. Well, aren't we sinning just fine without a without license? license. <laughs> as, I, as I look at the Christian world, here we are afraid of God, trying to impress God, trying hard to work for God to get in, in his good graces. We're we're in this achieving system, and yet we're failing and we're sinning just fine. So what if we gave God's grace a chance? I mean, Jesus said, whoever's forgiven much loves much. And do we believe him on that, that, that forgiveness and grace and the kindness of the Lord, that's what leads us to repentance and motivates and inspires us? We're talking this afternoon with uh, Dr. Andrew Farley. He's a pastor and author of The Grace Message. Is the gospel really this good? Well, the answer clearly is yes, but do we get it? Well, the book is all about helping us understand what the scriptures teach, and that changes everything. We'll continue our conversation in just a moment. Again, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I'm continuing my conversation with Dr. Andrew Farley. He's a best-selling author of nine books. His latest is The Grace Message, Is the Gospel Really This Good? And the answer, of course, if you've read the scriptures, if you know Jesus, yes. But do we dramatically underestimate the value and the virtue of grace in the life of the believer? And I suppose the answer to that is also yes for many of us. Um, how is grace connected to the gospel message? And in coming to Christ and recognizing what he's done for us, how does that connection um, help us better understand the value and the virtue of grace? Yeah, well, grace is not a special focus. It's not a special emphasis. Uh, grace is the gospel itself. I mean, we're told in, in the book of Acts that the gospel is called the gospel of grace. That's Acts twenty twenty four. Uh, We're told elsewhere that uh, God has given us grace upon grace, that Jesus is full of grace. Uh, Romans says we're standing in grace. Uh, Titus 2 says the grace of God teaches us to say no to sin. I mean, we could go on and on. There's dozens and dozens of passages showing us that 
grace is the very core of the gospel. In fact, it's what differentiates Christianity from world religions. I mean, the common theme in world religions is you do your part, you work your hardest, God will grade on a curve. You try to get clean and get pure and get right through your obedience, and maybe, just maybe, uh, you will satisfy the deity. And that's what we see in world religions with a founder and a rule book, and you keep the rules, and you're in good standing. If you fail to keep the rules, you're punished. And that's religion, but that's not uh, what Christianity really is. Uh, Christianity is about relying on the work of another, the finished work of Jesus Christ. Uh, he hung on that cross and said it's finished, and then, of course, we learn through the New Testament that salvation is free by grace we're saved. Well, I think this is one of the areas where there's confusion. We know that legalism is opposed to the the grace message, but what role does obedience play? We know that we're not earning our salvation. We're not earning favor um, before God, but we are called to be obedient. How does that fit into the grace message and the, the grace that we uh, enjoy in Christ? Yeah, so God's grace is equipping. And when we were saved, it was more than a ticket to heaven. It was more than an invitation to attend a building once a week on Sunday morning. Um, it was actually a heart surgery. You might even say a DNA swap at the core of our being. Uh, he took out our heart of stone and gave us a new heart. Romans 6 says that that new heart is an obedient heart, and that's the connection we need to make. Uh, look, I can be forgiven and yet miserable. Mm-hmm. I can be righteous and yet miserable. So why do I want to be miserable in choosing sin? Uh, I've got this new heart. There's only one thing that's going to satisfy me. Uh, and so I'm going to prove that God is right about me. Uh, I'm going to prove it by sinning and being miserable or by trusting Jesus and being fulfilled. But either way, I prove that my heart is an obedient heart. I'm addicted to Jesus. I'm allergic to sin. Hmm. I think when we come to recognize the the depth of God's grace um, that, again, he lavishes on us, our heart's desire is to please him out of gratitude and love rather than that sense of obligation that so often drives us uh, to be legalistic. Right. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm either waking up uh, Monday morning and deciding I'm going to behave today in order to earn points and achieve status and get the certificates redeemable in heaven's gift shop, or I'm waking up Monday morning realizing you know what, Father, you've told me I'm your child, that I'm new-hearted, that I'm dead to sin, alive to God, that you've got the market cornered on on satisfaction, and I believe you, that you're good. So today I'm going to taste and see that the Lord is good. And if that's my motivation, well, that's healthy Christianity. What does it mean to die to sin? Um, we struggle throughout our lifetime because we still are in the flesh. What does it mean to die to, to sin? And what role does grace play in the, uh, the working out, the sanctification that is part of the life of every believer? Yeah, so it's interesting because when we actually look at this phrase, die to sin, uh, it's used in past tense for the believer. So this happened to us at salvation. I mean, Galatians 2.20 says, I've been crucified mm-hmm. with Christ, and Romans 6 says, I, I, my old self died. Uh, Paul even says, you died to sin. How can you live in it any longer? So 
that's that heart surgery I was talking about a moment ago. I may not realize that I have a, a heart surgery that's occurred. I may still think that uh, I'm the same as the guy next door. I mean, that guy next door, he lays awake nights dreaming of new ways to sin. And then here you and I are talking about ways to not sin. So uh, we're spiritually, well, we're aliens in this world. We're, we're not a good fit with a fallen world. And so if I could just wrap my mind around the fact that it's not just that Jesus died for my sins. I died with Jesus. And when I died with Jesus, I died to sin's power. And that means sin doesn't have to have dominance over me anymore. I can say no to sin, and I can say yes to who I really am. But there's a process there. I mean, you're right. I'm learning and I'm growing in that truth. I, I don't have perfect understanding. And so God says we'll be transformed by the renewing of our minds. But let me just let me just clarify one thing mm -hmm. that I think is really lacking in in the average person's understanding. This doesn't mean that my heart is wicked and deceitful and all those things that we like to say. No, you've got the new heart. What you need is is new attitudes, new perspectives, the renewing of the mind. So it's like software and hardware. Uh, when you bring a computer home, the hardware's new, but you still might need some software updates. Well, likewise, we've got the new spiritual hardware as believers, but we still need some software updates, the renewing of the mind. Yeah, I think some of us are carrying around the corpse of our sin nature, not realizing we have been crucified with Christ and and we live in him. How can we live in God's grace? What are some practical steps that you would suggest for those of us who want to live and embrace fully all that God has for us? Yeah. So, uh, you know, we could bring sin nature into it because you mentioned that. I mean, uh, so I had a great talk in 2009 uh, with Zondervan, the publishing house. They published my first book. And I said, hey, look, uh, you guys have the NIV Bible, and you are perpetuating this uh, sinful nature verbiage, and it's not actually in the original language. Uh, would you look at that again? And sure enough, they did. After two decades of it being in there, they changed it back to flesh. And I think that's important. Uh, it's not just semantics, because, you know, what we need to tell believers is you've got a new nature uh, your new spiritual nature is that you're one spirit with the Lord, and yet you've got the stinking thinking, and that's what the flesh is. It's stinking thinking. It's it's old attitudes. It's remnants of that old self in your attitudes, but the old self is gone. So you need to be reprogrammed in your mind, let go of fleshly thinking, and you ask me about you know, what's the best way forward? Well, you fuel up. I mean, you fuel up on God's truth and you fuel up on God's grace and you, you set your mind on the goodness of God and the goodness of the gospel. And I, I think if we learn who we are in Christ, then we can be ourselves and express Jesus at the same time. I mean, we're not an obstacle to God. We're his instruments. Yeah, that's good. Now, what do you say to people who don't believe that God's grace is as good as the Bible says? Now, my first suggestion would be read the book and then read the book. Uh, but how would you respond to, to one who uh, isn't convinced that God's grace is as good as the scriptures say? Yeah, I think they need a heavier dose of law for about 15 minutes to come to their senses. 
you know, if we're going to say God's grace is not this big, then what's our answer? Go back to the law, and you'll quickly find Jesus said, cut off your hand, pluck out your eye, be perfect like God, go sell everything in order to enter the kingdom. I mean, Jesus showed us the stringency of true self-improvement. He showed us how impossible it was so that we would realize our need for God's grace. So when somebody says, no, no, it's not all about grace, or no, no, God's grace is not that big, I would just invite them to go examine the law again and come back when they're done, because when you see the law in all of its impossible glory, then the grace of God shines even more brightly. Oh, absolutely. In fact, Jesus said he fulfilled the law. We were so blessed to be free from the burden of of all that was yes. in it. Well, Dr. Farley, I thank you for the book, and I thank you for taking time to to join us here today. Once again, the book is The Grace Message. Is the gospel really this good? The answer, yes. <laughs> uh, published by Salem Books. Thank you so much, Dr. Farley. Thank you. My pleasure. Bye-bye. All right, we're going to take a quick break. We'll be back to wrap things up. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to the final segment of The Georgine Rice Show. Well, you may have heard that the U.S. Senate uh, earlier this week passed legislation to keep daylight saving time permanent. Well, sleep experts say widely agree with the Senate that the country should abandon its twice yearly seasonal time changes, but they disagree on one key point, which time system should be permanent. Well, unlike the Senate, many sleep experts, I don't know what it takes to be a sleep expert. You just sit around and sleep all the time. But anyway, they believe the country should adopt year round standard time. Well, after the Senate voted unanimously and with little discussion on Tuesday to make daylight saving time permanent, the American Academy of Sleep Medicine issued a statement cautioning that the move overlooks potential health risks associated with that time system. Now, the legislation would uh, take effect next year. It has to get through the House and be signed by the president to become law. So it's not the law yet. But we do applaud stopping the switching during the course of the year and settling on a permanent time. That's a quote from a member of the organization, their public safety committee. But she went on to say standard time for so many scientific and circadian rationales and public health safety reasons should really be what the permanent time is set to. Apparently, nobody bothered to ask. Well, the uh, association made this stance clear in 2020 when it released a position statement recommending that the country institute year-round standard time. Its reasoning, at least in part, is that standard time is more closely associated with humans' intrinsic circadian rhythm, rhythm rather, and that disrupting that rhythm, as happens with daylight saving time, I'm still a little drowsy as I speak, has been associated with increased risks of obesity, metabolic syndrome, cardiovascular disease, and depression. Well, that doesn't sound very favorable. Well, should you hate daylight saving time? Well, that depends on where you live. So depending on where you are on the globe, it may be worse than where others are on the globe. Some experts have called for more research before deciding on a permanent time, while others question the push for year-round standard time. And this particular organization... The Association of um, the Academy, let me get it right, the American Academy of Sleep Medicine, their statement received backing from more than a dozen other organizations, including the National Safety Council and the National Parent Teacher Association. 
Well, the vote on Tuesday comes with a growing nationwide push for permanent daylight saving time. Critics have cast doubt on the purported energy savings benefit, which is what motivated the Senate. Advocates argue that it promotes public safety with evidence linking the that extra daylight in the evenings to decrease crime. Well, crime will always have with us, I'm, I fear. Well, the Senate is finally delivering on something Americans all over the country want, to never have to change their clocks again. That's a quote from uh, Senator Patty Murray, our neighbor uh, to the north, who spoke on the Senate floor after the vote. Uh, she co-authored the bipartisan bill with Senator Marco Rubio and others. That's kind of a an odd uh, couple. No more dark afternoons in the winter, Murray said. No more losing an hour of sleep every spring. I'm all for that. We want more sunshine during our most productive waking hours, she said. But many sleep experts say that those in favor of more light in the late afternoons and evenings may not be considering the costs. We have all enjoyed those summer evenings with seemingly endless dusks. That's an associate professor of psychiatry and behavioral sciences at Johns Hopkins University. But daylight saving times does not save evening light at all. It simply steals it from the morning when it's necessary to maintain our healthy biological rhythms. And although the Association of Sleep Experts noted that chronic effects of permanent daylight saving time have not been well studied, it highlighted some research that found the body clock doesn't adjust to daylight saving time even after several months. Now, we don't know after several years, but not after several months, which could result in a permanent discrepancy between the environmental clock and the body clock. Well, the circadian clock is not just something that involves the cells of your brain. The professor said the circadian clock also regulates rhythms in other areas of the body, like cells of the heart, cells of the liver. And by altering our natural circadian rhythm in this way, we're throwing off that biological rhythm. And that's a longer term uh, has a longer term effect. Now, while no time system will be perfect for everyone until, you know, we get there. Making daylight saving time permanent would lead to a greater number of dark mornings than we have now. That's according to the chief of sleep medicine at Northwestern University's Feinberg School of Medicine. That's Phyllis Z. With daylight saving time, we're perpetually out of uh, synchronization with our internal clocks and we often achieve less nighttime sleep, something I definitely don't need less of. Both uh, circumstances have negative health impacts. Extra evening light suppresses the melatonin that should be preparing us for falling asleep the latter uh, rather the later dawn during daylight saving time deprives our um, biological clocks of the critical light signal well experts say circadian misalignment has been associated with adverse effects on cognition and mood as well as cardiovascular and metabolic function it's really not a good thing to uh, to have your internal body clocks out of sync imagine being in a jet lag a lot of the time it can't be good for you well, the current enthusiasm for permanent daylight saving time is grossly misguided, Newberger uh, goes on to say, predicting a return to the extremely unpopular 1970s dark winter mornings with commuters going to work and children going to school long before sunrise, inevitably leading to injuries and fatalities. Well, it doesn't seem to be getting any better here. Injuries and fatalities? Well, one of the professors, Z, says um, her heart sank when she saw the news of the Senate vote. I thought there would be more of a discussion that it wouldn't be as unanimous of three potential time systems for the country to be on. Permanent standard, biannual switching and permanent daylight saving time. She said the last is probably the worst choice. 
Well, the association noted in a statement on Tuesday that the pros and cons of daylight saving time and standard time were discussed in detail during a hearing held by the House Energy and Commerce Subcommittee on March 9th. Unfortunately, the quick action by the Senate allowed for neither a robust discussion nor a debate. Uh, We call on the House to take more time to assess the potential ramifications of establishing permanent daylight saving time before making such an important decision that will affect all Americans. Well, everybody um, advocates a permanent time, but this difference uh, between uh, one hour back and one hour forward is not so clear in everybody's mind. I would uh, like to see further debate, some due diligence done on these health consequences and public safety measures before anything else goes forward. Well, we'll see what actually happens in this, what I hope will be an ongoing debate. And again, this is according to not only uh, the American Academy of Sleep Medicine, but others who are in the field of uh, sleep and rest and circadian rhythms and all of that. So we'll uh, we'll continue to follow the story in the House. And as I mentioned, it passed unanimously in the Senate, but that doesn't mean that it will uh, pass as quickly in the in the House. And given um, the hue and cry that we're now hearing, it's possible that they'll take a little more care in dealing with it in the next chamber. Nate Jackson made the point that um, the kids just aren't all right, that what's happened over the last couple of years and prior to has really left a, a negative impact imprint on many kids. Be afraid of everyone around you in a grossly simplified nutshell that pretty much sums up the message that adults have been giving to children for the last two years of COVID. Social distancing, quarantines, masking, vaccination, not to mention harshly judging people who come to different conclusions are all things forced upon kids who just want to see faces and play with their friends. No wonder there's a drastic uptick in anxiety disorders in American children. The bigger picture is that this increase began years before anyone heard the word coronavirus, and thus the blame doesn't all lie with the pandemic. But one doctor called it a crisis on top of a crisis. Using data from the National Survey of Children's Health, a U.S. Department of Health and Human Services study published in the medical journal JAMA of Pediatrics found that kids' mental health has declined markedly in the last few years. Between 2016 and 2020, there were significant increases in children's diagnosed anxiety and depression, decreases in physical activity, and decreases in caregiver mental and emotional well-being and coping with parental demands. After the onset of the pandemic specifically, there were significant year-over-year increases in children's diagnosed behavior or conduct uh, problems, decreases in preventative medical care visits, increases in unmet health care needs, and increases in the proportion of young children whose parents quit, declined, or changed jobs because of child care problems. Specifically, anxiety diagnoses grew 29%, depression 27% between 2016 and 2020. COVID made things worse, with a 21% increase in behavior or conduct problems in 2020. It isn't a simple black and white issue, so we'll make some um, changes, I hope, that will benefit children in the long run. But something to be aware of. Be afraid of everyone around you when kids just want to have fun. Well, we are out of time. I want to uh, thank James Blend for producing, Sam Moppin for engineering, and thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Tomorrow, Friday, we'll take a look at the serious headline news. We'll also take a look at the lighter side of the news, and we'll share this week's Christian outlook. So I hope you'll join us. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. 
If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.